Hello, I'm Mark McCurgo and welcome to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local community where you live. Hello everyone, welcome to our latest Village in the City podcast and I'm really excited to have with us today Cormac Russell, a real legend of asset-based community development, who is here to talk about his new book, The Connected Community, which he has written with John McKnight, the subtitle Discovering the Health, Wealth and Power of Neighbourhoods. Cormac, welcome to you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having having me on the show, or the podcast, I should call it, not the show. <laughs> it's great. It's great to be with you. We've been doing a lot of a lot of interviews over the last um, few weeks, so we're never quite sure if we're on a show or a podcast. But this feels more like a conversation, which is always nice. Well, that's what I'd like it to be, Cormac. Just to start off, before we come to the book, you've written it with John McKnight, who is really one of the great uh, sources and founders of the whole asset-based community development movement. How did you come across John for the first time? So I know John uh, a little over 25 years. The first encounter with John was actually when I was working in Ireland uh, in the um, healthcare sector. And we were moving out of very formalized institutions and trying to move into what we were calling community care. And as we looked around to try to understand what that actually meant in practice, there was a lot of ideas, a lot of theories, but you know, a lot of the stuff that I had certainly written and read at that time was more for thinkers than doers. And John McKnight was a standout commentator who was saying things for doers. He was talking about how you make care manifest in an actual village, in an actual neighborhood. And it was very concrete. Um, so when I first encountered his work, I mean, John is 91 in November. Uh, so he's many, many, many decades of experience across a range of wisdom traditions. And um, he's he's been writing for a long, long time. So. His writing, I think, was the first encounter, obviously. And then I reached out to him and said, would, would you come to Ireland? And then discovered that, of course, he's got a deep Irish heritage alongside a, a Scot Scottish heritage. Um, so deeply, deeply Celtic in his uh, roots and loves fishing. So he's a regular uh, visitor to Ireland. Um, so it was a match made in heaven from there on in. We um, had many things in common and uh, it's, it's been a really first and for, you know, I mean, obviously it's been an incredible mentor, but I mean, I think John has been a mentor to so, so many people really is incredibly generous, you know, wisdom carrier in that sense, but also, and, and very grateful for the fact that uh, it's seasoned into a very deep friendship. And actually he and I were just talking before I came on this call and he's still inventing still curious, still asking probing questions, and still one of the most incisive minds that I know in this space. He'd give us all a run for our money and then, you know, and then some. Fantastic. So you've got this new book together, The Connected Community. Tell us a bit about what makes this book different to your previous book, which was also terrific. I, I thought Rekindling Kindling Democracy. Uh, what makes this a particularly special book for you? Well, I think first and foremost, Rekindling Democracy uh, is, uh, it's a plea or an invitation uh, to people who are serving in civic space. So professionals who are really curious about how they might um, be in service, be on tap rather than on top when it comes to working with communities. 
and what they might do about um, institutions that have become monopolies or have become syndicalized, where all of the professions kind of cluster up together. And uh, there are a lot of those people out there, actually. So I wrote that book for them, for those who want to mind the gap between their institutional imperialism and the possibility of the neighborhood. The second book, this current book, I think is really for all comers, but primarily and firstly, it's for neighbors. So that book is, you know, from the neighborhood out, in a sense, because I do think that, and we're hearing a lot of feedback already, that practitioners are reading the book and saying, yes, I'm getting a lot of really practical, sturdy ideas that I can use in my own practice. But we primarily said at the beginning of the pandemic, when uh, we genuinely both felt that we were going to spend quite a lot of time at home and possibly a quite a, you know, considerably less time mentoring and training, uh, whatnot. Well, we just said, you know, what, what could we do to be useful during this time? And so we agreed that we would write a book together. Now, ironically, we actually ended up being busier at doing all of the stuff and writing the book as well, but that was okay. So I think they're the two differences, the audiences essentially. And what do you think is the key thing that people should take away? I guess part of it is in the title, The Connected Community. And you talk about the power of connection all the way through the book. What do you think is, is, the, is the important thing about the power of connection? I, I think it's what it's for. I, I think an awful lot of the wisdom tradition of ABCD in the Americas has been kind of framed in the narrative of having. We have assets, we have resources, we have gifts. I think this book is reminding us that we have them for purpose, but it's not just having them for acquisition's sake or so that we can have sovereignty, but that there is work for us to do. And if we don't do it, it will not get done. Nobody is going to fund this revolution. This is a revolution of the heart. And it's about us remembering our birthright and remembering in two senses, recalling, literally coming out of our stupefaction and also remembering in the sense of the membership of village in the city of, you know, all of the different, because there's hundreds of stories in the book that celebrate what happens when people come together and say, we have resources and we have work to do, but we must do it together. And it's the doing that really makes the difference. And it's not doing that's about exchanging opinions, because often that's what divides us, not connects us. But it's in the act of doing together with people who have different opinions with us that we can actually grow a real sense of what. And we call it the connected community, not a connected community. And that's important because it's a vision. It's an ideal. It's it's a call towards something uh, that is yet to be fulfilled and maybe never is truly fully fulfilled until the person furthest at the edge of our village is not just seen for their gifts and for what they have, but also for that very key insight that we cannot be a community without them. In the early part of the book, I was very, very encouraged, and not surprised, but very encouraged to find you spending a lot of time talking about discovering what's there already. 
Uh, and the point is not to invent things anew, but it's to discover what's there already and then begin to connect that. And then interesting things start to happen. And of course, that echoes very much my background in solution-focused coaching and change work. It's very surprising, I think, to some people that even in what looks like rather a dysfunctional, you know, not very happy place, there are things that are useful that are, that are there already if you go and look for them. And that ability to see through the the muck and the despair and the and and all the unfortunateness to actually there's useful things going on is a great skill one of the things that you mentioned you mentioned kindly village in the city in that part and how i connected up with paul hancock and then other locals and uh, i discovered a facebook group in the west end which had 19 people in it and we just went through 2300 people in our local facebook group uh, last week. That's finding a little something and building on it for me. Uh, how would you say that that element of finding what's there is is the, at the heart of this practice? Well, I mean, you've said it well yourself, Mark, and I think it's so critical that we start with what we have and 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 commit deeply to be present to it, because that whole being present is the discovery phase there you know we talk about discover connect mobilize and the sequence matters so starting by really celebrating really being present to what's there and particularly to what's there that's not yet fully valued maybe not even visible so really beginning to be there with curiosity with a lot of us a patience and and a willingness to you know radically wait for what's there to declare itself. Because what's there doesn't declare itself. You know, what, what you discover in the winter is very different than what this, you know, will declare itself in the spring, right? For for good reason. It's not that it's it's being coy, it's that it's by its nature, our community is dynamic. So it, it declares itself. My father used to say, you know, if you inherit new land, never farm it for the first four seasons because the land will teach you how to farm it over those seasons. Community is exactly the same. There are different rhythms, different seasons, different things that are just lurking around the corner if we're curious and patient. But I think John and I were just talking about this idea, you know, that um, we're not just discovering the assets, the resources that are in our community, but we're also discovering the points of intersection between all of those. So we use the notion of a tapestry and a tapestry and and certainly in our mind has three features. We haven't mentioned this in the book, actually. This is this is something we're working on for uh, the next book. But we believe that a tapestry is beautiful. And and this kind of I have to uh, I have to cite and acknowledge uh, Satish Kumar's work for this but that uh, tapestry is beautiful, useful, and durable. And we'd add a fourth feature, it tells stories. That's what tapestries do. If you look at the Norman tapestry or you go to any indigenous community that's creating a tapestry, that's what it does. So our sense of what the discovery phase is, is you're not just discovering the assets in the community. In fact, that's almost negligible. What you're discovering more fundamentally is purpose, is care, is, is, the, is the drive towards wholeness. And the assets are in service of that. 
So we talk a lot about, uh, you know, discovering seven key functions uh, around health and well-being, care, ecology, and so forth. And our sense is, just to finish out that metaphor of the tapestry, our sense is that each of those functions are like threads and that they're only making sense when we understand the interlacing nature of those. So a way of thinking about it is the neighborhood is the loom, the functions are the threads, and our collective discovery together is the tapestry yet to be fully expressed. So that, that's, that's the work, if you like, of what we would call the connected community. So it's very much an imagined piece. It's calling on not just moral imagination, but all kinds of you know, embodied imagination. So it's, that's why we're using very, very embodied terms like weaving, tapestry, the loom, because we really strongly feel that that's what discovery is. Discovery isn't just mental, in other words. It's very feminine. It's very relational. It's very felt. Um, and and it takes patience. It's got and it, you know it's got a gestation period, if you like. And that was our sense of it. In fact, we felt rendered completely incompetent by our maleness, our paleness, and our staleness as we thought about this, because in so many ways, you know, though though we were trying to say this, we were channeling the wisdom of so many people whose voices never get centered in these conversations. So this is also important, that the discovery is always at its most fertile, at the edge, at the margins, where people have been rendered strangers, where people have been rendered voiceless. They can see things and feel, and I don't mean to be ableist, but they can sense, let's say, things that we simply never can because of our privilege. Thank you, Koma. Yes, that image of the tapestry, that multi-leveled metaphor of the tapestry that's wonderful thank you very much for for sharing that bit of emerging emerging know-how there the book is in these three sections basically discover connect and mobilize and you mentioned already that the the process of that is, is important and you can if you, you can't start mobilizing before you've uh, before you've been out and discovered and at the heart of the book is this connection piece about connecting things that are things and people and purposes that are already there at some level and then new things will emerge one of the questions i get sometimes is i want to work with neighbors i want to work with if you like ordinary people who want to make their neighborhood a bit better one of the questions i get is people thinking well i'd like to do that but i can't i how do i do i'm just i'm just this person i'm just this person and i want to say to them no i think you can i think you can so I'd be very keen to hear what you would have to say to somebody who was feeling the, the, the drive a little bit or the, you know, the dissatisfaction with their community, wanting to do something to make it better, um, but, but wondering about are they, are, they able, are they able to do it? Is it really something they can do? Hmm. One of the things I really believe, you know, is we live in a world where people think the artist is a special kind of person. And I really believe we've gotten that back to front. Uh, we have to think and recognize that every person is a special kind of artist. So I think the starting point is, is that in our nature, without exception, I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't succumb to this, 
that when we are doing something that is in our nature about our gift, we tend to forget time and move into what the psychologists call flow. So one of the questions I often ask people is, what are you doing when you lose track of time? You know, um, sometimes they don't want to tell you because it's very personal, but <laughs> that's okay. But, 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 but sometimes what they're doing where they lose track of time could be anything from origami to, you know, to something that maybe they're doing privately. I remember one of my favorite examples is discovering through somebody else vicariously, a man in Leeds who had whittled 400 walking sticks, but they were all in his garden shed, never been shared with anybody. And he was desperately lonely, you know? Now that man is running, uh, you know, a group of people who carve and make different things, not just walking sticks. Those 400 walking sticks are out in the community and shared. So I think one of the challenges is not that he doesn't have something to contribute necessarily, but that he may not necessarily know enough people or know enough about what his contribution may be to them to make the links. So sometimes the challenge is to help the person link to their gift. That's one piece. Uh, but the next challenge is to find somewhere in the community where that gift can be received. And it's important not to assume that the person you're talking to can do both of those things. This is part of the skill. This is a skill is the wrong word. This is actually a practice of neighborliness, that a neighbor has the ability to shine a light on another neighbor's gift, right? Because we know a gift is not a gift until it's given. The next thing may be to shine a light in the neighborhood where it might be that that gift can be brokered in and received. So I think this is the, the great art of not every neighbor can do this, by the way, but we do know that in every neighborhood, there are neighbors that we call connectors who know how to do this. Um, they haven't been trained. Uh, they, they've come ready-baked, right? That's their nature, if you like, to be able to broker that connection between the gift of the person, whether they realize it's there or not. And it's, and they just have, I've seen them do things like they'll, they'll talk to somebody who's come out of prison and they won't refer to them as an ex-prisoner. They'll, they'll, they'll call them a community returner. And you say, my God, where did you come up with that word? Or those words that they formally, but because their nature is to figure out how to connect at that level, they find the language. And then, you know, you see them do things like say, well, if you were able to start a business that made it nicer to live in this neighborhood, what would you love to do? And the young man says whatever he says. And then suddenly they're linking that man with somebody who did have a brush with the law 40 years ago, but now runs their own business and is trusted in the community. And you see them navigating all of these intercession points, which most of us don't even know exist. And you think, wow, isn't that just beautiful? Well, what they're doing is, is they're weaving the social network, the, the social soil, they're moving through it and they're churning it. You know, a worm does this in the soil of nature and the average worm turns six tons of soil a month. But hardly anybody knows that. Well, that's what the connector is doing in our neighborhood. They're turning the social soil constantly. 
So the book, everyone, is The Connected Community, and there's a special website for the book as well. Uh, it's theconnected.community, which is a very, a very good sign. You'll find out all the information about where to buy it all over the world and so on at that website. And, of course, it's available through all the usual channels. You're listening to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local communities where you live. And you can find out lots of information from Village in the City, including our handbook, our calls, our online community. You can put your village on our map, and there's lots of resources at villageinthecity.net. Well, we opened up the call to questions, and first in was Chris from the United States of America. Thanks, Mark. Cormac, thanks for having me on, on the uh, podcast today. The, the question I have, and I did read the book over the weekend, actually, and one of the questions you ask in there, which is, I guess, pertinent to me being a city manager of a, of a community of about 40,000 that actually Rich is, uh, is a member of, the, the question I have, you asked, are you letting local government officials off the hook mm. by you know, encouraging neighbors to create the community and not the government as a, as a mm. government institution itself? That's an important question to me because here in the Americas, we, we have, at least in some of our more impoverished neighborhoods, there's a, there's a sense, I'm not gonna call it apathy ne necessarily, while there is some apathetic people, but there is a sense that because we've created in some ways a social welfare state, mm -hmm. that we have people that have become for their entire lives and generations, frankly, dependent upon government to solve all of their social problems, right? Um, give me something for my kids to do. You know, help me find a job. You know, create this place for me. Help me pay for my house. All of these things now, they look to the government for solutions to. So what I appreciate most about what you're doing, especially with the book, is saying there is a role for all of these institutions, government, as well as um, but more importantly, you as people have to create your community and help your neighborhood. And it isn't the government that's going to solve all the solutions for you. So I do appreciate that point. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little more about that and, and what is the role of local government as you see it? Mm. No, it's a great question, Chris. And, and, and I, I agree that, you know, if, if the story is that the only way my life and the life of the people I love and care about is going to improve is if somebody from government or, you know, not-for-profit or a donor foundation comes in to do that for me. Well, that kind of story has all kinds of negative knock-on effects as well. Aside from the fact that, you know, the obvious, I think, follow-on question to that is, how's that working out for you? Right. And you will largely hear a lot of uh, negativity. It's not working out well uh, for the most part. And I don't think that it's working out terribly well for the employees of government either. I think it is probably one of the best explanations we have available to us for burnout. Mm -hmm. I agree. So I think some, some thoughts on this, which is a reprise of what's in the book, but, uh, but also some, some thoughts with respect to what's in Rekindling Democracy, is I think what you're describing very well, Chris, is an inversion of democracy. And we need, we need to understand it in those terms, that when we say that we're going to define citizens, uh, you know, to the role, if you like, of citizens as that which happens after the important work 
of salaried strangers is done, then that's it. It's game over, really. Uh, we're no longer in a democracy. We're in a technocracy. We're in a situation where we're asking paid professionals to do our living, our dying. So my health is in the hands of the doctor, right? My, my uh, child's wisdom is in the hands of a uh, teacher. Uh, my safety is in the response time of, of the police. And again, each time we look to what, do, like forget about ideology for a second, because ideology is just, it's running everybody into a brick wall. We're just running into the opposite sides of the same brick wall. So I think let's look at reality because reality can be incredibly healing, even when it's, it's scolding and it feels a bit sore. But the reality tells us, let's take health as a case in point, that only 15% of what determines our health and well-being has anything got to do with the doctor and the hospital and pharmacology and medicine. So, you know, at top tilt, at its very best, that's it. Now, this is pretty shocking when you look at, you know, provinces in Canada that are spending 50% of their GDP on acute hospitalization what's going on? And you ask them why, and they'll say, because there's no community alternative. But then you say, well, could we take some of your acute hospital budget and put it into community organizing or employing community building? And often they'll say no. So I don't think it's totally the fault of communities here either. I think we have to also look at what is it that institutions have been doing uh, so, yes, citizens have probably outsourced a lot of their functions, but it's also true to say that institutions have maybe accepted those functions and have become, you know, quite happy <laughs> in a sense in taking on that role. So what is the function to your question? First function, create a dome of protection around communities. Don't let outside nefarious interests do harm to the capacity of community. Miners, uh, extractive industries, um, I don't want to name examples, but industries that may come in and take, say, for example, seeds and patent them and then force people to buy them back and things like that. We should have public health policies. We should have regulations, you know, and, and remember those who would do harm to community tend not to like regulating uh, or being regulated, right? So, but nevertheless, that's part of what the role of local, good local government should be. It's to side with community, particularly against those that would do harm to its environment, to its economy, to its culture, right? The other is to do no harm itself, right? To not be one of those institutions that is being extractive, right? Um, it's a democratic public good. And therefore, not alone must be accountable, but it must be actively saying, what is it that we are not going to do to be helpful? And this is where we can be affirmative. And we talk about this in, term, in chapter nine on the role of the useful outsider. So your institution can be a useful outsider, a useless outsider, or a harmful outsider. <laughs> the three options, right? So we've got some local governments that are community-oriented. And they therefore see their role as cheerleaders, cheering on community. 
reminding community through good community development practices, uh, through good indigenous practices of being in right relationship, that there are certain things the community do best, that our job is not to uh, gaslight those communities by saying, well, that's your responsibility, away you go now. We can't just relocate authority uh, by saying, here's the responsibility and not giving the resource and not giving the trust and not giving the power over to, right? We've seen a lot of institutions, uh, local governments do this, Chris, you know, say, we suddenly discovered the power of community. We're running out of money. Away you go now and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. That's the neoliberal sure. gaslighting that we don't want to promote. And I know you don't either. Right. So how do we say to communities that not alone do we recognize your response ability, but we're going to support that ability to respond. And part of that is we're going to recognize the turbulence and the transition pains and pangs that you're going to feel from a story that says the only way your life is going to get better is if somebody like Chris comes in and does something to or for you to the only way your life is going to get better is when Chris actually says to you, I believe you can, and I'm going to support you to get connected with your neighbors, with your assets and with your purpose. And hey, here's the thing. I'm not going to go away when you get angry which normally takes somewhere about three to five minutes of explosion. And then you actually get to, okay, now I'm still here. Sure. So yeah. let's work out what you can do on your own with your neighbors and how we can remove the barriers to that. Let's work out what you can do over and above that. If we have, you know, a really good relationship where our assets are extending yours. And then you tell us, right, right. You know, without any negotiation, what is it that's left that we should do for community? Most people want their rubbish collected. They want their waterworks to be, you know, uh, trustworthy and so forth. So I think those three questions are really critical and the sequence matters. So big transition for local government is I believe the local government are stuck in the question of what can we do for communities? And then they wonder why there's so much apathy and dependence. I think we're schooling people into independence and so we've got to change that pedagogy and that narrative so some of that is definitely definitely about changing the nature of the conversation no I, I would agree with that Cormac and I think one of the things that I've tried really hard to do over the last two decades in, in, in doing this type of work is really not necessarily to, to fight the the apathy and to have people be more involved in their neighborhoods is to really give them something to care about to give them a neighborhood to care about so that comes through the built environment, which I think is the role of, of the local government, is to utilize the resources they're giving their government and put them back into making it a community that people want to care about and want to create. So for us, it's, it's more about creating public spaces so that people can be a community together. It's about giving them an area and from a, from a development standpoint, making sure to your point that we're protecting that neighborhood by, and I say this a lot from an economic development perspective, that I say no, to development much more than I say yes to. And, and that is because not all development is good development, especially when it comes to making sure that you're protecting the community and giving people a place that they're, that they're happy about and that they, they wanna protect and they wanna care about. And it's hard to get people to, and I think what a lot of these people don't realize, a lot of governments don't realize is a lot of these people that live in these neighborhoods haven't been giving a neighborhood to care about from their local government. So it's, it's hard to want to to preserve something that isn't worth preserving, um, especially from a built environment. So for us, 
you know, one of the, the illustrations you talked about in the books is people taking bricks out and creating a streetscape um, along the street. And my, my point is, those are the kind of things that we're trying to do in the community that I manage is to give a community that people want to care about, want to participate in and want to protect. So, Chris, just really briefly, and I think this is important for the group, just just offer one piece of finesse uh, or nuance. I think what we're there for saying is that one of the roles of an outsider is to to precipitate, not just provide. So the difficulty with a lot of governments is they're stuck in a provision or I provide services. Right. And what we're actually talking about is precipitating citizenship, precipitating community building. And that's really critical. So it's an, uh, you're saying it, but I just wanted to lift that up and make that distinction very clear. And of course, that links a lot with uh, what Mark and I talk about, which is yeah. coaching, facilitation, all those kinds of skills. But yeah. thank you very much, Chris. I know there are others who want to come yeah. in. And I see in the chat as well, quite rightly a reference to the iron, iron rule. Don't do for others what they can do for themselves. And I would just add a nuance to that and what they can do with their neighbors. Right. That's, that's certainly something I used to use my maxim as a, a teacher and trainer and facilitator all through the last 30 years. Is, and I learned it from an American guy called Dave Meyer, who's now not with us. The idea don't do for learners in my case, or don't do for others what they can do for themselves or for each other. Yeah. Don't do for others what they can do for themselves or for each other. And, and that's such a powerful maxim to carry around, I think. So we have Brian from Ghana who has a question. Brian, over to you. Yes, I um, Hi, last week uh, I it was uh, I met with a couple of day, for a couple of days with a Ghanaian colleague, and um, we're both coming up to our third age, and we were wondering what kinds of um, learning activities, especially using things like action learning, we could do for community development, and. Um, one of the things we began to look at was uh, asset-based community development. And as we were watching some of the videos that were online, uh, my colleague said, yes, this is good, but this is very Western. And I think you noted earlier that a lot of the North American stuff was about sovereignty. Uh, and I do notice that in your book, you're now talking much more about Ubuntu, uh, and about collective flourishing. But there did seem to be a gap because when we were searching for African examples, they were few. And the ones that we found seemed to be obsessed with the leaky bucket, which seems to be a deficit uh, metaphor, if you might, don't mind my yes, saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the leaky bucket metaphors come from um, Cody, which... Uh, would be very close friends of ours, but they they, they really uh, have worked very hard in Ethiopia yeah. and other places promoting mm -hmm. the leaky bucket idea for sure. Yeah, so that's not, we can't take credit for that. Okay. Anyways, I'm just wondering if you could point to some good examples from the majority world that, that might actually give us some concrete examples to help us frame our own approaches yeah. uh, and, and especially from sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. uh, if you can recommend some good, good sources. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the work of the Wellspring Foundation in Rwanda, in, in the capital, and particularly in the Gasabo district, 
where 45 schools have been working with 384 villages to actually do this work from the ground up um, is a really good example of what's happening in East Africa, at least. Um, and I think that's a really powerful expression of taking the principles and not seeing them as a model, but seeing them as a description and then figuring out in the local context, mm -hmm. how might we make sense of this here? Yeah. And I think that's really important, Brian. One of, one of the most colonial things I, I've ever come across is a model. When somebody says to you, here's a model, all you have to do is have fidelity to this model and the world will be a better place. I immediately become really, really suspicious of that. And it doesn't tend to work in most cultures. So I've done personally a huge amount of work, you know, within the contexts that are, I suppose, very much grounded in the village in indigenous wisdom. So mm -hmm. I also think of the work that um, I had the privilege of really learning uh, so much from in the Rift Valley in Kenya and working between Pokot and Turkana tribes that were actually involved in a huge uh, amount of conflict for want of a better way of describing it and beginning to see the importance of Vicoba, the village banking systems, but also um, the uh, rural farming teacher schools, you know, they, 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 that, to me, that's an expression of people coming together and being powerful together at that peer-to-peer -peer grassroots level, and then watching how peace starts to break out all over the place in really small, localized ways. You know, th th those, those pastoral um, and farmer field schools couldn't work except for people saying to each other, Let's find out what it is we know about farming in this place and this place in particular. And let's share that with each other so that we can better understand what's possible around here. And for me, that's an expression of asset-based you know, community development. And I've seen that in so many, uh, so many contexts. To me, if I'm being really, you know, transparent with you, Brian. I would feel that all ABCD is trying to do, and it's limited by its descriptors and those who describe it, is they're trying to describe what they see people who describe themselves primarily as neighbors doing together when they're effective with their neighbors. Mm. And I, I, you know, I mean, you've seen this obviously through your eyes and in your context. And one of the great joys I have, and the book just didn't have enough pages to share all of the stories, but one of the great joys I have, and of course you also have the tyranny of your uh, publisher who says that, you know, this is, the, this is what goes in, this is what makes the cut. But one of the joys I have is I can imagine people taking that basic framework of discover, connect and mobilize and basically using that to say, hey, we're doing this already you know, and telling their own stories in their own contexts. And I think that's where the real richness and learning is going to come from this. It's not going to be from John and Cormac <laughs> writing a book, but hopefully that book will be an invitation to people to sort of tell their own stories in their own voice and language and context. Well, it, it was a bit of serendipity that uh, I'd had my conversation with my friend and then I saw, I saw uh, Mark's advert come up. So... I quickly got a 
got a copy of the book and, and read it over the weekend, oh, uh, as my friend did. Uh, so but thank you. So the, the name of the, um, uh, of the organization is the Wellspring Trust? Wellspring Foundation. Yeah. Wellspring um, Foundation. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll send Mark a couple of more links as well so that you okay, can that'll be very you don't end up going down a rabbit hole. Okay. Yeah. Joe. Hi, Mark. Hi, hi Cormac. Um, hi, Joe. So I suppose I, I'm here, I'm, I'm thinking as, as you're talking, I probably represent one of these paid professionals sure. and, and possibly about to become a useless helper. So my question, I suppose, is. I've, I've been given some funding and my project has been given some funding to, broadly speaking, do some violence reduction, violence prevention, weapon carrying prevention work. And I'm kind of, I'm on a few weeks into, I suppose, what you call a scoping mission. And one of the ideas, I think, is that we'll do some work with schools and I suppose, and I'm already kind of thinking, am I going to be imposing this on schools and what are the dangers here that I'm about to go into? And I actually have your book ordered as well, but I'd be just curious um, for you, your thoughts on what yeah. might be the, the pitfalls of imposing this model on a school or a community and what I might say to my funders, because they're they're probably yes. thinking, I need to do this work and we need to yes. do this. What, what message can I give to my funders so that we can, I suppose, overt? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. well, first of all, Joe, let me honour the nature of your questions, because this is exactly what a useful outsider would do. They would ask questions that are not about prescription, but proscription. What am I not going to do? How can I be careful? How can I be thoughtful? How can I not disrupt the capacities that are there already? How can I honor the violence reduction capabilities that are actually in the community that may not be obvious, that the community themselves may not even see? What might I be able to do using my privilege to illuminate the capacities that are there and remind people of the truth? This is, this is important because otherwise we get into ideology again. So what's the truth? Well, Robert Sampson is the preeminent social scientist on what creates, let's, let's be affirmative, what creates public safety, <laughs> okay? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to minimize the need for violence reduction, but just to be affirmative what creates public safety. And he tells us based on his science that there are two key determinants, right? The first is how many neighbors you know by first name in the place where you live. And the second is how often you do things together in the built environment that contribute to the common good, right? These things actually in terms of actual determinants, in terms of actually producing the opposite of crime, which you might call peace or safety or love or care, you know, such things. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, for example, you can't also within this think very deeply about crime reduction. But we know that um, there are communities after that awful, um, very public murder of George Floyd by, should we remind each other again, by police, right? Um, that there's no clear cut guidelines here, the goodies and the baddies, and you know, who, who, who is the producer of safety? Who's, and this is a really important point, you see, because I think the first thing, Joe, that a useful outsider, or maybe let's be affirmative, and a, let's call you an alongsider, 
right? Because now that's a much more framing of, you know, what you want to be, right? I want to get alongside people. May not be for a long time. You know, it's a kind of recognition that you will move on, perhaps, particularly if you're successful. <laughs> it's called promotion, okay? So this is kind of the way of the world, and how things happen. But as you're alongside people, it may be just that piece of recognizing that if somebody with your authority comes in and defines the issue as crime and defines the issue primarily as, you know, violence reduction, then you and people like you will be the key actors. So if the key issue is crime, right, the key actor is the police. That makes sense to you? Now, all the evidence tells us that if the key actor is the police, you won't ultimately reduce crime because you can't without the community being the key drivers. So one of the first things you need to do as an alongsider is to disabuse people of the false assumption that all they have to do is see it, say it, and you'll start it, which, by the way, is the mantra in the UK. And it's spreading. It's like a contagion. Now they say it on the trains as well <laughs> as well as in the police stations. And it's not true. It's just not true. So we know that what reduces crime is um, a connected, caring community. What supplements their capacity is a respectful, collaborative police force and judiciary um, that certainly are not exploiting or doing harm to people, right? And are not engaged in structural racism or at least are beginning to check their privilege and, and acknowledge structural racism because it's there, it's real. And we saw it during COVID, you know, even with the, you know, the NHS and the HSE. Are you calling in from Ireland, Joe? I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. So the HSE in Ireland, you know, that there were, there, were, there were black and brown communities that were refusing to engage in the vaccine, not because they had any issue with the vaccine, but because they don't trust the professionals who stick things in their arms, right? So these are real issues. They're not made up. And in, in that respect, I think an alongsider is able to be alongside those, those issues and those concerns. And that, quite frankly, is bigger than school. So I think that goes out into what we might call the wider neighborhood, um, particularly in the Irish context. And, um, you know, and, and I think it opens up the space as well for what did you do to stay safe during COVID, during lockdown? Mm -hmm. How did you gather up? How did you protect each other? What does care look like for you? You know, and then, you know, as you go into communities where there is knife crime, it's really, really interesting. And you'll know this to understand why it makes good sense to be a 14 year old walking through Drimna or Ballymun or whatever and carry a knife. Because actually, when you say, tell me your story and we hear the story, it, look, if I was in their situation, I'd be carrying a knife, too, quite frankly. So, you know, it's not. It, it, and and understanding that story, all of that, Joe, to me, is useful <laughs> and essential. Actually, yeah. I don't know if that's useful necessarily. Oh, it is. I, 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 I love the idea of the alongsider and the, the Robert Sampson reference. I'd be looking him up. Um, yeah, yeah. And no. look, you know, telling your donors. <laughs> it, it, look, so, some of this is about teaching our donors how to treat our communities. Um, and and that isn't a, I don't have a technical answer for you necessarily, but I do think that it does require courage. Hmm. Um, and some of that, of course, is making the business case and saying, 
there is time to be able to say here, let's learn with and from communities and we won't lift them up by putting them down. Mm -hmm. So if all you're doing is paying me to go in and ask the community, what's the best way to deal with crime? Keep your money. I'll save it for you because the answer they will give you is more police. But if what you're interested in is how genuinely based on the evidence to hear the evidence and support communities to be prime actors, then let's learn from places like Milwaukee where we're seeing the police force actually through the blueprint for peace, see the issue not as an enforcement issue, but to see the issue through the lens of public health and to recognize in that city, it's the same 15 neighborhoods that are producing the alumni of the prison services, the alumni of the hospitals, the alumni of our looked after care facilities and residential homes. It doesn't take a genius to know there's postal codes attached to all of this. What are we doing to support those communities to become connected communities? That's not about more police. That's not even about more public health people or more social workers. That's about community development. It's about community cohesion. It's about, and we can measure this, by the way, by the depth of the associational life, the clubs, the groups, the associational networks. You know, how many people can say of six of their neighbors that they have reciprocal relationships with them. These are your proxies for crime reduction that actually endures. So I think that's the challenge for the for the donors. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks very much, Karma. Thanks. Great question, Joe. There's also another example a bit closer to home. I understand that the Glasgow Violence Reduction Unit has had similar success by treating knife crime as a public health issue. Uh, and you may be able to find stuff about that online as well, Joe, but I'm sure you know about it already. Karen McCluskey, um, Sir Harry Burns, if you want to, some heavyweights. And these are people who've gone before you and have learned how to be alongsiders. So you're not putting completely new ground. Thank you.